musicians. Several weeks ago, the uh, deacon officers had asked if uh, we could ordain the new guys sooner than January and could we do it on a Sunday morning. And uh, others said, you know, Scott, in deacons meetings and deacons elections, we talk about qualifications for deacons and what it means. But it'd be good for the entire church to hear what the scripture says about the office of deacon. And so that's what I want to do this morning. Uh, we need to make haste. We do have the laying on of hands at the end of the service. We're going to abbreviate that. That will not be done the way it typically is on a Sunday night when each of the deacons lays hands on the candidates and prays over them. Our deacons will be coming forward. And then Kurt Inslee, the chairman of our deacons, and myself, just the two of us, will be uh, praying for these guys. Uh, also, we do have one more testimony, David Mertz, his testimony to hear uh, at the end. But anyway, I want to ask you to take your Bibles this morning, your copy of the Scripture, and turn to two passages of Scripture, Acts chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. Acts chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to talk to you this morning on the subject matter, the church expanding its ministry. The church expanding its ministry. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Luke, in Acts chapter 6, writes, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And then over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning there in verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to, to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your plan for the church and the way you have gifted people differently and the way you have called some to special positions of leadership and service. I think of what Paul says to the Corinthians, let all things be done decently and in good order. You care about your church. Because as 1 Timothy 3 also says, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So you're very concerned about your church and the health of your church and the witness of your church. Lord, give us understanding today as we talk about the church expanding its ministry and the need that it had for this group that eventually came to be known as deacons. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Folks, when it comes to church history, there have been some very important and critical milestones. Actually, some pivotal moments took place in church history right here in the book of Acts. And this is one of them. This is one of those critical moments in church history. Here, there is a division that has entered into the church or is about to enter into the church. What will happen to the fellowship if this division is fostered, if it grows? Will this be the record of the first church split? What will happen to the witness of Christ? Dr. John R.W. Stott writes, The devil's attack here was the most clever of the three so far. Having failed to overcome the church by either persecution or corruption, he now tried distraction. If he could preoccupy the apostles with social administration, which though essential was not their calling, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach, and so they would leave the church without any defense against false doctrine. Now, I want you to see today, this morning, how the church solved a very pressing problem. And their solution, you will notice, didn't just involve policy, it involved people. A whole new group of servants was added to the church, a grouping that came to be referred to as deacons. Now, this passage is recognized by many scholars today as the group that was the predecessor to the office of deacon. It's probably not the actual office, but it's the predecessor to all of that. Now, I want you to see how important this group was and how they actually helped the church to grow and to flourish and to strengthen their witness. I want you to understand this morning, though, that even if you are not a deacon or you have no intentions of being a deacon, this passage still says volumes to you. You see, it points out the type of person that God is looking for as far as character is concerned. 
We live in a world now that discounts character. Just so long as people have the right capabilities, the right things on their resume, that's good enough for many, but not so in the kingdom of God. God cares about our character. He cares about the type of men and women that we are. Not just about what we do, but He cares about who we are. In fact, who we are, if we're not the right type of people with the right type of character, it can invalidate anything we set out to do. And so character matters. And so again, even if you're not a deacon and never will be a deacon, I hope this morning will be a challenge to you to, to look at some of these qualities that God is looking for in people who serve in His church. Now beyond that, we're going to see today a group of, of biblically based, servant-minded men who end up being a tremendous blessing not only to the apostles, not only to the congregation, but to the kingdom of God itself. Now the first thing I want you to write down with me this morning, because the church is made up of fallen men and women, shortcomings and offenses can occur, both intentional and unintentional. Look again at verse 1, it says, Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Yes, we are redeemed through Christ. We are saints, but that doesn't mean that we are without sin or without struggles, individually and corporately. We still face challenges. We face shortcomings. The challenge here, the shortcoming here that caused an offense had to do with neglect. Now, we don't need to assume that this neglect was intentional. In fact, I kind of assumed that it wasn't. The reason it happened was because of the rapid growth of the early church. And because of their outreach, because of the way so many people were coming into the church in those early years, there were some natural oversights that were taking place. It's in that context that this problem surfaced. The Bible says that the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected. Now folks, at this point in the book of Acts, you have to understand that among the Christians, there were, there were two separate groups. And even among the Jews, there were these two separate groups. There were the native Hebrews. They most likely spoke Hebrew, the Hebrew language in formal settings, but in everyday conversation, Aramaic was their common language. And then there were the Hellenistic Jews. These were Jews who had moved outside of Israel and many of them had moved back home. They spoke Greek. Now at this point, We've got to cover a little bit of background history if we're going to understand this. After the Babylonian exile, the majority of Jews did not move back to rebuild Jerusalem. In fact, only 50,000 moved back. We have the book of Esther 
that tells us the state of those and the outcome of those who did not move back home. And we can understand why some of them didn't, even if maybe it was disobedience. They should have gone back. But they had established farms and homes and businesses in Babylon. And they'd been there 70 years. Had kids and grandkids. So many stayed. And then once the Persians defeated the Babylonians, Cyrus issued the decree that the Jews could go back home. Again, 50,000 did. Most didn't. And then the Greeks under Alexander the Great defeated the Persians. Alexander built a tremendous empire. It was his belief that all of the world should be Greek. And so his plan was to Hellenize the world. That's the terminology, the Hellenization of the world. To make the entire world Greek. Greek in language, Greek in culture. He was not only a, a great military leader, but he, he was successful at spreading this, this Greek culture. And so as Jews moved to different places in the world, they became Hellenized. That's also the motivation behind the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures known as the Septuagint. Because you see, these Jews that had moved around the world, they had lost touch with their native tongue. And they needed their Old Testament in their language. And so the Septuagint came into being. When you read your New Testament... And the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament. Most oftentimes they're quoting not from the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, but they're quoting from the Septuagint. Well, not surprisingly, many of these Hellenized Jews, as they aged, some of them became widows, lost other family members probably. They were getting older. What was their desire? Just like a lot of people today, they'll move back home. They'll move back home so they can die at home where they're from and they can be buried in their home place. And so many of these Hellenized Jews moved back to Jerusalem and, and Israel for that purpose. And as they were converted and came into the church, the charge was that the Hellenistic Greek widows were being overlooked. It wasn't a racial thing in all probability. It, it was just language and culture. The, the native Hebrews and the Hellenized Hebrews were meeting in churches that were separate from one another so they could understand the language of the worship service. Now, the Jews had a double distribution for the needy that Jewish Christians also adopted. There was the weekly distribution to the poor on Fridays that was called the kupah, the weekly distribution. And that went to residents. And that consisted of meal, 14 meals, two meals a day for seven days. That distribution took place generally on Fridays. And then you had a daily distribution that would take care of any resident aliens, any immigrants in the land. And that daily distribution was called the Tamhui. T-A-M-H-U-Y. It's probably that 
that's being referred to here. The daily distribution consisted of food and drink. Now, the complaint centered around this daily distribution. These widows who've moved back to their homeland, they're being overlooked. And so they begin to murmur. It's not the thing to do, but that's nevertheless what they started doing. They started complaining that their widows are being overlooked. They grumble, they murmur. It's the same word that the Greek version of the Old Testament again uses in the book of Exodus when the children of Israel out in the wilderness were murmuring against Moses. They're murmuring. They're complaining. And this complaint of neglect comes to the attention of the apostles. Now who were the apostles? Of course these were the twelve original disciples but in Acts 1 Judas has been replaced by Matthias. Well, the second thing I want you to see this morning, when offenses are known, Christians should work together through the leadership of the Word and the Spirit to come up with solutions. Beginning in verse 2, we see this. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint over this duty. The nice thing to see here is how they handled this situation. Folks, it matters how we handle conflict. It matters as a church family how we deal with division and difficult moments. They handled this one in such an admirable way. And I want you to understand how important this was because, again, this could have been the first church split in church history and how devastating that would have been for an infant church. But again, notice how they handled the problem. The proposal was for what? It was for a division of labor. The apostles knew that their primary calling on their lives was to be given to the ministry of the word. They're not saying that their work is more spiritual. They're not saying that caring for people is not, more, uh, is not important. They're simply saying they can't do everything and do everything effectively. In the pastoral epistles, we see this division of labor continued. Pastors or elders, as they're called. Pastors, elders, overseers, shepherds, bishops are to lead and administrate the church. The deacons are to care for the, the needs of the flock in certain matters. Deacons are a servant body to the local church body. In fact, the name deacon is actually the Greek word for servant, diakonos. Deacons are not a ruling body telling everybody else in the church family what they've got to do. Deacons are a servant body. I've known of churches where every single committee, every single ministry had to report to the deacons for approval. Folks, that is a blatant disregard for the biblical office of deacon. In fact, one, one meaning of the word deacon, the term, 
refers to a waiter, a waiter serving food and drink. Deacons are waiters, are servants to the church body. Sometimes you have deacons wanting to be elders and vice versa. And the local ministry gets confused and it suffers. You have both for a reason. They are to complement one another and work together in their own individual areas for the strength of the ministry of the body. Now in the case of Acts 6, we see the wisdom that was exercised here. It boils down to the division of labor. They come up with a plan whereby the group neglected could put forth some names and so more people could get involved in ministry. More people developed ownership of the ministry. And more people started using their gifts. And the apostles were able to continue to do what God had called them to do. Folks, this is so basic to church life. This is the biblical plan for the church. Let's stop a minute and not just talk about pastors and deacons. Let's talk about everybody. The Bible says in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, in 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians chapter 4, God has given gifts, spiritual gifts, to Christians. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. And you are to use that gift. It's not for your personal use or edification. It is for the edification of the body. And when all the parts of the body are in place and doing what they're supposed to be doing, the body fits together like a glove and, and nothing's being neglected. Everything's being done because everybody is exercising their God-given gift. And when that happens, the witness of the church flourishes and more people can be reached and more people uh, can be ministered to. This is God's plan. Every Christian who confesses the name of Jesus Christ should identify with a local church where they worship together corporately and serve corporately. They need to discover what their spiritual gift is and they need to use it in the service of the body of Christ in the community. God's basic plan. Back to the text, we see that the offer was to get folks involved in serving the day-to-day -day needs of the congregation. But I want you to notice a very important principle here. Those who had the complaint were to put names forth. But it also mattered the type of men that were selected. Again, I, I remind you, God cares about our character. They weren't just to select anybody. These were men, after all, who would be handling church, the church's resources and money. They would be going into homes, ministering to families. As they ministered to families, no doubt they would learn some very sensitive things. And so between that and the church's resources that they're taking care of, they needed to be noble-minded men who could be entrusted with this work. And who wouldn't bring shame to the name of Christ. And so there are qualities that they were to look for. They were not to select men and then hope somehow or another that the men selected would someday somehow rise to these qualities. These men were selected rather because they already possessed 
these qualities. It's because they already possessed these qualities that they were chosen. Well, what were the qualities? They were to be men of good repute, the ESV says. What type of reputation do you have? Would people that you work with who know you on a daily basis, who see the way you handle things, your neighbors, whoever it might be that you rub shoulders with on a constant basis, what would they say about your reputation? Would you be a man of good repute? I think of a case several years back, a 29-year-old Christian artist from Australia in a worship band wrote a very popular song about God being a healer. And he talked about his own life, how he was struggling with cancer, and he would post things on social media going to doctor's offices. He even, he even would have oxygen tanks and tubes and all that kind of stuff. And this made everybody think the song he had written and was singing was all the more powerful because this was a young man who knew what he was talking about, God being a healer, because this is a young man going through a devastated disease. What a powerful witness this was. Well, guess what came out? None of it was true. It was a hoax. He concocted this hoax about himself having cancer because he had been involved in a 16-year struggle with pornography. Not, not sure how those, all those dots got connected, but because he was going through this 16-year struggle with pornography, the news media said he had concocted this story so he could gain everybody's sympathies and make his album all the more powerful. Folks, what do things like that do to a person's reputation? What do things like that do to the reputation of people in church? If all of a sudden it comes out that a deacon or a pastor or somebody in the church is, is doing something that absolutely destroys their Christian witness and testimony. Men, what kind of reputation do you have? I'd say to everybody, what's your reputation? It matters. Is there anything in your life that if it came out and was public, it would destroy your reputation and your witness? You need to deal with that. These were to be men of good repute. They were also to be men full of the Spirit. Now, how in the world do you spot somebody full of the Spirit? I mean, after all, you can't see the Holy Spirit, so how do you know? I mean, it's, it's something nebulous you can't really measure but you know, actually, we do have an indication, don't we? The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 Where the Spirit is, there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, folks, it's not guesswork. You can know if somebody is filled with the Spirit, do they have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives? These were to be men full of the Spirit. They were also to be men full of wisdom. He's not talking about the wisdom of the world. James in James chapter 3 contrasts the wisdom of the world with the wisdom from God. The wisdom of the world, James says, has its source in, in the devil and in demonic powers. 
and it's jealousy and en- envious and full of division and spite and all these ty- all this unhealthy worldly ambition. But James says the wisdom from above is from God and it's full of peace and good fruit. These were to be men full of the wisdom from above, the wisdom of God. Now again, I want you to notice all these qualifications here have to do with what? Character. The type of men they were to be in the congregation. You go over to 1 Timothy 3, the main text in the New Testament on deacons, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, continues what Luke was talking about in, in Acts. He says that they are also to be reverent or dignified. In other words, there, there is a serious, spiritually-minded attitude that a deacon is to have. Deacons can have fun. There's nothing wrong with that. We have fun in our meetings sometimes. We did. <laughs> I think of this past Thursday night, the closing prayer that Ed Polly offered, the closing prayer. He, he said, Lord, thank you that, that this has been such a good-natured meeting. It's been pleasant. It's been fun. And we've also done your work. That's what it means to be reverent and dignified. Pleasant, dignified, reverent. The word means that there's also a seriousness about the man when it comes to the things of the Lord. A deacon, just like a pastor ought to be very serious about the things of God. He's not to be double-tongued. He's to be trustworthy. As he carries out his ministry of looking after needs in the church, he won't tell one person one thing and another person something else. What a distasteful thing that is. When a man is only concerned with being popular, he might go into homes, say one thing to one crowd, another thing to another crowd. When it comes out, what's everybody say? Everybody says, probably not to his face, but they say, you know what, pastor, he's just a good politician. He's a politician. He's double-tongued. Deacons aren't supposed to be double-tongued. You say what you mean, you mean what you say. And you're consistent. Not addicted to much wine. Somebody says, oh, does that mean I can be addicted to some wine? (laughs) Well, what are you going to do with 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and Romans 14? You see, the Bible recognizes that there's some gray areas to life. There's not not a command in black and white. that There's some gray areas in the Christian life. What's Paul say about that in those other texts? He says, you know what, I might feel like I have the personal liberty to do something. But if I offend my brother or I cause my brother to stumble, then I'm actually going to set aside my personal liberties and rights for the sake of my brother. Better to forego liberties that you think you might have. What's it going to say to a church family if they go to a restaurant and here's a family with children and they sit down at a table and their deacon is over there drinking? What kind of testimony is that going to 
justly. Paul goes on to say, not greedy for dishonest gain. Folks, we have to live in a fallen world. We have to support our families. We have to make an income. We, we run businesses. We make a profit. Without profits, you can't save for the future. The book of Proverbs talks about the wisdom of a man saving for the future and looking after the future needs of his family. A, a, the book of Proverbs says a fool refuses to do any of that. I mean, after all, God created us to work and to be productive. That's one of the things that's involved in men being created in the image of God. We have a God who works and is creative. So we're to work. And not just be in it to get rich. Or to be greedy or selfish. A deacon, in other words, should not be a man who's driven by money. That money's all he thinks about. In his life, in his church, he's driven by money. First Timothy tells us that those who are rich are to be rich in good deeds. Folks, the Bible is not against wealth. Some of the godliest people in the Bible were very wealthy. What the Bible is against is the love of money. Also, I've seen people judge a church ministry by money. If the offerings are good, hey, that church down there must be on the right track. Man, they're doing, I was talking to one of their members and they're doing so good. Oh, that church over there, they're struggling financially. They must not be doing things right. I, I've known of people who judge churches that way. But I want you to remember something. In Revelation 2 and 3, when Jesus was addressing the seven churches of the book of Revelation, some of them were rich and doing well. And he had words of condemnation for those. The two congregations that were poor and struggling, he had words of commendation for them and no condemnation. What I'm saying is don't judge either life or ministry by money. Don't be driven by money. And certainly, deacons, don't be, don't be greedy for gain. Dishonest gain. On the positive side, I think this says that all of us, God wants us to be content. Do you live a life of contentment? Then he moves on to say, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Deacons are to be doctrinally sound. Do you know your Bible? Do you know what you believe and why? I'm not saying you've got to be a resident theologian. But could you sit down with a family as you minister to one of your families and you go in a home and let's say their teenager has some serious questions about the faith. Maybe their teenager knows somebody at school that's even gotten caught up in a cult. And they're starting to entertain. So could you as a deacon be able to explain the mystery of the faith and lay out why you believe what you believe? Could you do that? I want you to remember Stephen's one of the first deacons here. And Stephen, the next thing you read in the book of Acts, he's out preaching the gospel. He's giving a defense to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. So Paul is saying deacons need to, they need to have a grounding, a solid grounding doctrinally. Then the next one. Husband of one wife. Man, that's a hot potato today, isn't it? 
I mean, do I even, do I even cover this? Of course, I have to. But before we get too deep into this issue, let me preface my comments by saying that it's a good thing that such issues are addressed in the Bible. Folks, in society where everything is shifting, the church is the one place where biblical marriage ought to be honored because the Word of God teaches marriage between a man and a woman, hopefully for life. That's God's standard. And to the person that says this whole discussion is too complicated and too controversial, let me remind you, if we truly believe in the divine inspiration of the Bible and that God has given us these qualifications because they matter to Him, then we have to deal with it and we have to understand what the biblical writer is saying. We can't shrug our shoulders and act like it doesn't matter. But what's this phrase mean? Mias Ganuikas Andres, a one woman man, a man committed to one woman. The Roman Catholics believe that only a single man can be a pastor or deacon. His one woman is the church, they say, the bride of Christ. But you know, Paul argued to the Corinthians he had every right to have a wife as Peter and the other apostles did. Some say it means you have to be married. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, the higher clergy are to be celibate, but their parish ministers are required to be married. But Paul wrote to the Corinthians saying he wished more of them would remain single and celibate as he was. As he was. Some say it means if you're married and your wife dies, let's say you're a senior adult man, been married for 50 years and your wife dies, two or three years later you marry somebody else. Some people say you are now disqualified to be a deacon. But Paul addressed that in Romans chapter 7. How death dissolves the marriage bond so that you're able to take another spouse without being accused of anything inappropriate or being accused of adultery. Some say it rules out polygamist, which obviously it does, but it's unlikely that was Paul's main thought here because contrary to what some people believe, polygamy was very rare in the first century. And guess what? There was even secular Roman law against it. So it's not very likely that Paul would have been addressing a situation that was rare and illegal. Some say it, mean, it just simply means committed to your one wife. And most Greek scholars agree that's the basic meaning. A man is committed to the woman he's married to. He's a one-woman man. One conservative scholar goes so far as to say it's, it's not even addressing Marriage, divorce, these issues is simply saying he's committed to his wife. This means that even if you've only been married one time, you may not be deacon material because there's a possibility you could be a flirt, a womanizer at the office, emotional adultery. You could be in an office where everybody knows what your character is. Oh yeah, he's married, but boy, I wonder if his wife knows some of what he does. 
you are to have the reputation, deacons, you are committed to one woman. Finally, some people say it rules out forever, in all circumstances, divorced men. You'll find that interpretation a lot. And folks, this is truly a difficult one. It, and it's not as straightforward as you might think. I'm going to tell you both sides, and I'm going to give you some concluding thoughts. And I want you to remember that. I'm going to give you both sides, okay? Consider this. What about the man who was divorced as an unbeliever, and then based on 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And let's say that even since becoming a Christian, he has a wonderful marriage that everyone in the church respects, and he's now been married for 40 years. Let's say that this man and his wife are, are admired maybe in their marriage as much or more than anybody else in the church. Is he disqualified, discommitted to his wife, or a one-woman man rule him out? Do we take a man who, when he was 22, he was divorced in his youth, maybe he wasn't even a Christian at the time, he remarried, let's say, at 25, he got saved, now he's 75, been married 50 years to the same woman, and we say to that man, for the rest of your life, no matter the situation, you can never, ever serve as a deacon. Some would say yes, complicating it even more. Some that say yes, he can't serve. Put him in as a Sunday school teacher teaching doctrine, but they don't let him be a deacon serving tables. And some say, where's the consistency in that? Also consider the fact, and I'm almost done here, okay? I saved the hardest one for last. Also consider the fact that Jesus and Paul set down two situations in which divorce was permissible. Those being adultery and abandonment. If an allowance was made under those two cases by Jesus and Paul, is any kind of future service ruled out for him? Let me give you a case in point. True story happened right here. We had a man here. He and his wife have retired and moved to another state. Wonderful people. He married at age 18. He was drafted to go to Vietnam. He came home after two years only to find, to his surprise, his wife had both divorced him and remarried somebody they knew while he'd been on the battlefield for his country. He and his second wife now have been married for pushing 50 years and were some of the finest examples in our church. Taught Sunday school, worked in friendly neighbors. Is he disqualified? Now taking the other side a moment. On the other hand, isn't it at least possible that a recent divorce, or worse, multiple divorces, could possibly reveal something about that person that the church needs to step back from and say, you know what, maybe it's not wise that he becomes a deacon. Isn't that possible too? 
Somebody else may say, if my pastor or deacon is divorced, my kids might get the message from their leaders at church that marriage and divorce aren't that serious. I've actually heard that one. But aside from all of those anecdotal scenarios, let me go back to what Mias Ganuakas Andres truly means. I'm going to bottom line it for you, both sides. Bottom line to the church. I'm not sure you can use those Greek words to rule out the man I spoke of who went off to Vietnam, came home to find out he was a divorced man and now has a 45-year history of faithfulness. I think we have to look at the overall character of the person. I truly do not believe that it's in the spirit of the gospel that we forever and ever and ever and ever blacklist somebody based on what they did in their youth. I believe that the words mias, genuikas, andras are telling the church in the present, look at the man's lifestyle. Look at his testimony. Is he a good testimony for the church. If you want to be legalistic about it, then I, I could pull you aside and ask you some questions, not in mixed company. And you might back off of some of your legalism if, if I'm speaking to you. Because after all, what Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? If you have ever even looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So, I mean, you could argue you're not a one-woman man. There's some difficult questions around this. Bottom line, I tell the man, your divorce, I don't care what the circumstances have been, will never, ever be okay with some in the church. I can list you some churches out that have almost divided over this issue. What's the word diakonos mean? A servant. You can be a diakonos in 5,000 different ways without holding the title. And so I'll tell a man, do, do you want to push this and cause division in the body? You may feel like you have the right to serve, and maybe in your case you do. We could look at that. But I can promise you it'll divide the body. That's a tough one. It truly is. He says managing their children and their own households well. He's not perfect, but his family, his marriage, his life in all ways is an example. Now in closing, let me just mention the outcome in verse 7. What was the outcome by, by this way that they handled this division? What was the outcome? The gospel spread. They handled a problem. They stopped a division. They had division of labor. Everybody got involved more. They reached more to the point that even some of the Jewish priests were seeing what was going on in the church. And they were coming to faith in Christ. So we can say here that what Satan meant for evil, God turned around and used it for good. Amen? Deacons, 
This is to be your character resume and my character resume. And it should be something all of us in the church strive for. Remember Daniel in the Old Testament? They were looking, his opponents were looking for something to accuse Daniel in. And they couldn't. He was a man of integrity. Deacons be men of integrity. And everybody, find what your place of service is to be in the body of Christ. And get busy and build up the body of Christ. Edify the body of Christ. Remember, we're not just serving men, we're serving the Lord. Father, we thank you for this text. It tells us so much gives us food for thought about some matters, some difficult things to chew on. But Lord, without a doubt, it's telling us to be men of character. Men who have a testimony that, like Paul was able to say, follow me even as I follow Christ. Lord, I pray that every deacon in this church, every minister in that church could easily say that. Follow me as I follow Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.